Qantas is in crisis and Alan Joyce gets a goodbye and thank you deal of $24 million. Elements of what The Voice stands for are already with us. The answer to the question, what is true, is whatever government tells us. Uh, and we've seen this before. This is what happened during COVID. This is what happens with the climate uh, agenda. Seems clear to me that Alex Greenwich wants to create a brave new world. Uh, he wants to erase sex. Hello and welcome to Parting Shots, the weekly news podcast from ADH, hosted by me, Fred Paul, and usually co-hosted by my colleague Nick Cater. But Nick is away on location this week, so today his seat is being filled by none other than the woman whose opinions are more resolute and her impact on social media more substantial than most people twice her age in Parliament. It is English political commentator Sophie Corcoran. Sophie, just quickly tell us a bit about yourself and how you wound up in Sydney, Australia and at ADH. Well, I'm a 21-year-old political commentator from Britain. I did a reality star in the UK and I've run twice for local council in the UK and I ended up in Sydney on this fantastic podcast because I'm studying on exchange at the University of Sydney. Well, welcome to Australia, welcome to Sydney and most of all, welcome to ADH. You've already had a massive impact here. You've posted a couple of videos for us uh, commenting on various uh, sort of global issues, and they have gone absolutely ballistic on Twitter. I'll just uh, quickly dwell on that for a second, Sophie. You have a following that uh, is, let me say, is very, very polarised. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of people that love me and there's a lot of people that hate me, as you should. I don't think if you're doing politics right that you should be loved by everyone because if not, then you're not asking the right questions and saying the right things because you have to offend a certain demographic of people in order to be doing politics correctly. But no, I'm very pleased to join ADH. I think you know it's a great station. It's nice to have a station that's really committed to free speech. It's a real breath of fresh air for me coming from Britain that's so tightly controlled by Ofcom. Um, in, in, in every measure, including, you know, GB News is our saviour of the right in the UK, but even that is really controlled by Ofcom. It's no freedom there whatsoever. So it's a breath of fresh air for me to be able to come here and say what I really want to yeah, say. Yeah, well, we'll be talking about that later in the podcast because, uh, you know, we might not have an, off, an equivalent of Ofcom in Australia, but we will certainly be discussing the uh, federal government's new misinformation and disinformation bill, which might might even be worse than Ofcom. So we'll get to that later in the show. But let's get down to the news of the week. The biggest story for us Aussies is the dramatic demise of Qantas. Now, this all seems to have happened since the end of COVID. Not that, not that COVID ever started anyway. It was a fake pandemic right from the start. But anyway, like a lot of airlines, Qantas laid off thousands of staff during those pointless lockdowns because its planes weren't flying anyway. But since coming back, the airline has become a running joke among ordinary Australians. It's more preoccupied with virtue signalling about this Indigenous voice to Parliament, and again, more of that later, than it is about getting its planes off the ground on time, if they get off the ground at all. And I'm not exaggerating here, any Australian will tell you that. Our suspicions that this airline was being run by elitists who cared little about the customers was proven this week, and our dear colleague, Alan Jones, one of the greatest broadcasters of all time, summed it up nicely. Let's have a listen. Qantas is in crisis and Alan Joyce gets a goodbye and thank you deal of $24 million in shares and cash. 
which prompts the question, what would he have got if Qantas wasn't now drowning in crisis? You get that for failing, what do you get for winning? All this under the watchful eye of a board that seemingly believes that all that matters is a bottom line profit of 2.5 billion. The principle seemingly being shareholders first, daylight second, and customers last. No wonder they gained help from the Albanese government to prevent Qatar from expanding into Australia, lower airfares would result. And that bottom line of 2.5 billion profit would disappear. In the light of the failure to look after customers, the most important people, the most honourable course of action is for the board to resign. They have presided over a company whose reputation has been trashed. It's unthinkable that it would require the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission to at least allege that Qantas had secretly cancelled flights despite selling tickets worth more than half a billion dollars on those flights. Yes, I mean, Alan Joyce did get planes in the sky after coronavirus, full marks for that. But Qatar did more to bring Australians home than did Qantas. The customers tell a different story of infuriating flight cancellations, extortionate prices and lost luggage. Now, if you look at service failures, court cases, the possibility of multi-billion dollar payouts and penalties, surely the board has to explain why it allowed the reputation of our national carrier to be trashed. Sophie, you didn't grow up in Australia, but really uh, flying Qantas was the patriotic thing to do when I, when I first started travelling overseas. And, and, you know, it called itself the spirit of Australia and we all felt, you know, we all felt a, a serious loyalty to our national character, uh, sorry, carrier. And then it was privatised, you know, it used to be owned by the government, then it was privatised and, uh, and, you know, the results are, you know, you can see them now. This is crony capitalism, which is happening all around the world. Is it? Have you seen worse examples of this? No, I, th- I think when you talk about the the blocking of Qatar Airways, and obviously everyone seems to forget that the uh, Albanese son was in the chairman's lounge not too long ago, um, and all of a sudden he's trying to block Qatar, and then this guy's got an, a multi million pound payout for failing. You know, why are we consistently rewarding failure? That's something that we see in the UK with the Nat West boss who obviously got into a lot of hot water with Nigel Farage. She was paid an enormous amount of money to leave. You know, why do we keep getting these these leaders who fail miserably and then they go off into the sunset with millions of pounds? I think we've got to stop rewarding failure as a whole. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's real... I would call it sleaze. That's what we'd say is... is well, that's a good word. That is a very good word for it. And the, the connection between big corporations and big government these days and, you know, by association or or their intermediary, intermediary which you'd call big tech, it, it's really alarming. Now, there was a good column in the Australian Financial Review this morning written by John Roskam. He's the former, former executive director of the Institute of Public Affairs. Um, He put this in very good context. He said, quote, The views of big business in Australia are increasingly an echo of the government of the day. And that's certainly the case with Qantas. Nine of the country's largest public companies are in sectors tightly regulated and heavily policed by the government, unquote. Well, he's not the only person to uh, notice that Australia is increasingly communist or centrally controlled, the framers of our national constitution probably never envisaged that Canberra would have such tight control over 
say, for example, mining companies in Perth. Um, so these th this sort of link between um, government and big business, that, that's it's kind of, well, I mean, that was that was the definition of fascism back in the day, you know. What do you make of it, Sophie? Well, I mean, it's kind of ironic coming from a Labour government. These are the people that are supposed to be against sleaze. They're supposed to be against corruption. You know, they've made a legacy of complaining that... Uh, conservative governments or, or liberal governments are, are corrupt and they're doing jobs for the boys. Meanwhile, they're all in each other's back pockets of business. And that's why you can see these large companies are all of a sudden on the yes vote. They're all on the Albanese gravy train because they're getting a load of money for it. Why wouldn't you? They're smart business people. You know, the business people are playing their cards right. The politicians are the ones that aren't. Have you heard the story about our Prime Minister growing up in the Housing Commission? No, I haven't. Oh, you haven't? Oh, my God, you must be one of the few people in Australia who hasn't. You, I mean, granted, you've only been here for a few weeks, so uh, give it another couple of weeks and you will hear it because uh, he doesn't uh, miss a chance to remind us that he grew up in Housing Commission uh, with a single mum uh, and uh, he, he, every time he retells a story, it is, uh, it is to convey the, 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 the quite you know, valid um, observation that even the lowest in Australia, even someone from a disadvantaged background can aspire to the uh, most uh, powerful political office in the land. But he 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 says it, he, he doesn't, I don't think he realised, he says it with a kind of a class warfare uh, tone to it. He's never, he's never said it in a way where he expresses gratitude, for example, for the average Australian taxpayer who considerably helped him grow up, you know, provided a, a roof over his head. But the point I'm getting at, Sophie, is, you know, he's now a Labor prime minister and here he is rubbing shoulders with these corporate, you know, well, it rhymes with anchor and it starts with W. So I'll, <laughs> I'll leave the I'll leave the, uh, the viewer to work that one out. But... You know, he's he's not a man of the people. He's not a, certainly not working class. And the way Labor in Australia gets away with it is by portraying conservatives as the ones who are in the pocket of big business. Now, it's exactly the same in Britain, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly the same. And I think Labour Party in Britain, they represent the upper middle classes, the people that have got no other problems in their lives. So all they've got to do to complain about in their lives is somebody calling them the wrong pronoun because they're <laughs> so intensely privileged that they've got no other problems to worry about. Um, meanwhile, they, they say that they're the party for the working class, but they consistently put in measures that hurt working class people. And for some reason, nobody of, of my background, for example, is ever brave enough to challenge it. And when someone like me does challenge it and says, hang on a minute, these people are literally feeding the working class, all of a sudden you call it class trait and this, that and the other because people from my background are supposed to vote Labour. But why should we? Because they don't represent working people. Because as soon as these people get in a position of power, they forget where they come from and all of a sudden just care about rubbing shoulders with top businessmen and making more money for themselves and putting their son in the chairman's lounge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and pushing strange... Uh, policies onto the people talk about class structure. We're uh, we're going to talk. We're going to turn to the other big story of the week, and maybe you can make some observations about this. You know, from the uh, from the the, the class uh, structured society of of Britain. But um, are, are you alarmed that the voice to Parliament is a, is even being proposed in Australia? 
Yeah, I was quite surprised because I sort of knew of The Voice a couple of weeks before I came to Australia. But when I got here, I was like, why on earth are they doing such a bizarre thing? Like for me as a, a British person, The Voice is completely and utterly bizarre because the the idea, like if I went to Britain and said, oh, if you're not, you know, an ancestral Brit from, you know, however long ago, you're not really British. I'd rightly be called a racist for doing that. Um, but for some reason in Australia, it's not because it's always... Racism never counts if if the if it's a, a group that people deem to be oppressed. Um, but I think my concern really from The Voice is it very much mirrors the Brexit referendum debate in the fact that the Remain side in the UK were a bunch of elitist establishment shields who were in the pockets of biz, big business. It wasn't a grassroots campaign. It come from, you know, your celebrities, your top politicians, your big businessmen. And and the urban elite. Yes, yep. quite. And, and that's very similar to the Yes campaign of The Voice. You know, that side is, again, big business. It's not grassroots at all. You've got that guy that sang that song. It's oh, all, John Farnham. Yeah, yep. it's all celebrities and you know, the likes of Qantas versus the regular people of Australia. Like, similar things sort of happened in Brexit. It was the, the establishment versus the working class. And obviously the working class won, as they will do every single time, and as the no vote will most likely win here. Because when you give the working people the right to choose, they're not going to choose to rub shoulders with you lot because you're not good mm. for them. Yeah. Um. So when they did that in Brexit, we're still about seven years on from the referendum now and they still have never really accepted the result because the fact of the matter is the working class didn't do what they were told. And it's going to be the same thing when the no vote wins. They're going to say this is going to portray Australia as to be racist, to be bigots. And it's basically just saying, how dare you normal people not do what we've told you to do? Um, so there's a real class issue in these sorts of referendums. It's always the elites versus the working class. The working class will always win and they're going to have a problem with it. That's why... Um, I think Peter Dutton, he wants to bring in a second referendum if, if the voice fails. What does he not understand about the words no means no? You know, Indeed. They want to, it's, this isn't democratic. You know, they're going to pretend it's democracy. They're going to say, we gave you a chance to, to, to voice what you wanted to do. And the second the people aren't going to do what they're told to do, which they won't because what they're being told to do is ridiculous, they're going to straw out another referendum. That's a very good analogy to make because uh, my colleague uh, Lyle Shelton um, was quite prominent six years ago, six or seven years ago, when we had a national plebiscite on whether or not to redefine what a marriage is. And the plebiscite came up, uh, the plebiscite decided that um, marriage could be between two people of the same gender. And uh, my colleague here at uh, ADH, Lyle Shelton, was was probably the most prominent campaigner against that at the time, and he was warning this is a slippery slope. Now we've and everyone was saying, oh no, it's just you know love is love, and let men marry each other if they want to. And he was saying, no, if you redefine marriage and you you redefine it uh, as you know love is love, then you know people can love their car and marry that, or you know. Whatever, but we have since then seen the uh, emergence of the redefinition of genders, which is a direct consequence of that plebiscite and that change, legal change of definition. Now, Lyle back at the time said if you said no, if you advocated for a no vote in that plebiscite, you would branded as homophobic. This time around, if you are advocating no in this referendum, you're racist. Now, the point you've added to it is that this is also a slippery slope. 
that the elites don't care which way we will vote. It's going to be a slippery slope anyway, which brings me <laughs> to the next point. I mean, this is really how far we have sunk in the relations between Aborigines and non-Aborigines in Australia. It's amazing how our leaders have allowed this to happen because Australians are good people. We are not racist. This is one of the happiest, most positive, most prosperous countries in the history of the world. And yet over the past couple of decades, whoever under the sort of leadership of, of whichever dodgy um, sort of indigenous leader or left-leaning politician has allowed it to happen. Relations between Aborigines and non-Aborigines has soured incalculably. And this is where we are at now. This is a case involving, you're not going to believe this unless you, you might have heard this during the week, but if you haven't, sit down and make yourself a cup of tea because this is frightening. This involves some of the most prestigious land in the entire la nation. Let's have a listen. Elements of what The Voice stands for are already with us. A $100 million block of land on Balmoral Beach. This is an Aboriginal land claim. And the lefties on the council are most probably in support. Glorious land, 4,000 square metres just off the Esplanade basically on Balmoral Beach, widely considered one of Sydney's best family beaches. Prestigious land. But under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act of 1983, Indigenous communities can claim Crown land as compensation for the historic injustices dealt out to them. No, not them, but... <laughs> oh. Why would we be surprised? After all, aren't we told by all these militant Aboriginal activists that they own the land? It's been stolen from them? I've said before, the document released by the National Indigenous Australians Agency, and there's a stack of these funded outfits, but here is the Mossman thing writ large, because the documents say, in relation to the voice, quote, the dialogues discussed, there it is up for you, read it, discussed that a treaty could include a proper say in decision-making, the establishment of a truth commission, reparations, a financial settlement such as seeking a percentage of GDP, the resolution of land, water and resources issues, recognition of authority and customary law, and guarantees of respect for the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. <laughs> so there we are in Mossman, a confidential council meeting behind closed doors considering an Aboriginal land claim just off Balmoral Beach. They want a $100 million block. Vote yes if you like it. But we are sitting on the threshold of significant changes in the government of this country. Hand over your keys. You don't own the room you're sitting in. The urgency of a no vote has never been more pressing. Pretty alarming stuff, isn't it? Yeah, quite. I mean, if you can, you know, claim some incredibly value, what, what else can they claim? You know, yeah. what, what, where do we draw the line? What, what's stopping them? And I think the, the whole voice is about, oh, you know, these people just need to have a voice. If they want a voice, then you do what the rest of us have to do and you stand for election. It's Indeed. as simple as that. That's yep. that's the whole idea. What is the point of these advisory bodies? You know, we've got some fantastic in Australia, some fantastic Aboriginal people from Aboriginal backgrounds that are already in Parliament because they've done the right thing. They've decided, I want to give a voice to myself and to my community, as every single Australian wants to do. Then you run for election, as you're supposed to do. Yep. The um, the irony of, of, the, of the campaign in favour of this is that they have uh, enlisted help from some of the most prominent Indigenous people in the country 
who never needed a voice in the first place. Some of these people are highly paid, extremely admired and very successful sports stars and they're saying, oh, yeah, we need to change the constitution. Well, you know, welcome, yeah. welcome to Australia where, where, we, where we turn to sports people for, for advice on our constitution. I think a lot of it, though, like these Aboriginals that are going to become part of these advisory bodies, they're not going to be the sorts of Aboriginals that come from the lower socioeconomic background. They're going to be people that are academics and other sorts of people that claim to be Aboriginal but aren't. They're just woke people. They're about as Aboriginal as Joe Biden is Irish. <laughs> and... You know, they're going to be the people in this voice. It's going to be another elitist group that's going to have very little connection to the Aboriginal people. When in actual fact, if you want a voice, do the right thing. Yeah. All democracy the, is all democracy. This, all this emanates from a, a deliberate rewriting of our history when your predecessors <laughs> came and stuck a flag <laughs> in the... the British. <laughs> <Always> the British. <laughs> Well, we were so lucky that it was the British. I mean, if it was the Spanish or the French or, or God forbid, if it was the Japanese in World War Two. This would be an entirely different country, but we are, you know, thanks to the British, we are, you know, the uh, we are the inheritors of uh, of a, a wonderful language and the institutions that have allowed us to prosper and remain free ever since. And our indigenous population have been enormously um, have have enormously. Uh, benefited from that. Now, just going back to Balmoral Beach, though, I, I, I suspect there might be some people who think, "Oh, well, you know, they're just targeting the rich." You know, I mean, you, we might be, we might go to Balmoral Beach next week, and we'll show you around. But I mean, it is, it, it's extraordinary. It's, you know, it's like Knightsbridge on the harbour. Really, uh, this is a, this is very, very uh, um, rich neighbourhood, and a lot of people would just go, "Well, that doesn't affect me," but. If they can, if if these um, uh, supposed traditional landowners can claim ownership of public land in one of the most desirable places in the nation, then they can certainly take it in places like, for example, Redland City Council in the western suburbs of of Brisbane. Aborigines have made native title claims over three thousand five hundred council-owned sites in one urban council region and that includes of course sporting parks and playgrounds now the federal government this is startling the federal government is funding these claims funding the legal expenses of these claims while the council which is already broke is having to defend against these claims on the ratepayers dime now senator pauline hansen has been uh, talking about this quite adamantly and uh, forcefully in the Senate this week, but the point is Redland Council is not alone. There are tens of thousands of claims against public land in the nation. It's crazy. Did you think anything like this was going on when you landed here? No, to be honest, I kind of knew about The Voice, but when I was coming into Australia, I didn't do too much about The Voice. And the way that the Yes campaign are conducting the referendum is, you know, completely in disgrace of all sorts of electoral integrity. They're going on television and saying, you know, it's just a simple thing. So my first influence when I got here was, oh, it's just about them recognising. To be fair, when I got on the flight to... Um, Sydney. So I went from Singapore to Sydney. Um, they did the whole welcome to country thing, oh, and I oh, thought, no. what on earth is this rubbish? Like this is just <laughs> complete nonsense. Like how are you welcoming people that have lived here for their whole lives back to the country as if they're tourists? As if I would go to a migrant in Britain and say, oh, welcome to Britain, as if they're a visitor and they've, yeah. they've actually lived here. 
It's, it's just ludicrous, but I think that's the most stupid thing. But no, I think they the Yes campaign were really cynical in the way they've done. They think Australian people are stupid, and, and they're not. And that's the same mistake, again, that the Remain campaign made back in the UK. They're not holding the election here with integrity. And I think if, if you want to hold a referendum, then you need to do it properly. You need to tell people exactly what they're voting for, because that's democracy. But the voice, I don't think, is democracy. And I think that's... You should be concerned about one thing of what the voice will bring, but I think another separate concern that Australians should have is the way that the ele- the referendum itself is being conducted and the fact that even if the voice, even if people say no, the elites are going to get their way no matter what because Peter Dutton is just going to put through another referendum. So no matter what, this is going to happen. You really don't have any say. They're mm. pretending that it's a democracy in like North Korea where they hold elections <laughs> and King John wins every time. Yeah. It's pretty much the same thing that's happening here. They want you to think it's democratic, but it's not. The, the, the referendum isn't being done fairly with integrity you know you've got your mainstream the likes of the abc are all you know fact checking things that aren't are wrong like they they had that big fact checking scandal so it's not oh, just, i just interrupt you there that was the point with the pointer is it the pointer institute from the so that the abc the australian equivalent of the bbc has been caught out this week taking money from the pointer institute i think it is uh from memory um, for its fact-checking unit, and it's uh, it's been left extremely embarrassed by that. But uh, I've got to ask you quickly: the ABC worse than the BBC or not? Oh, that's that's <laughs> a good one. Um, no, because I think they're open to giving me a platform, which the BBC certainly most wouldn't do. <laughs> um, oh yeah, I've got to point out: uh, look out for uh, Sophie on the ABC on on the Q and A show. I think on Monday week. But yeah, carry on. And um, but I think you know. They're supposed to be impartial broadcasters and your impartial broadcasters are integral to holding proper elections. And when they're taking money to do this, you know, there's no chance that this election is going to be run fairly. They don't even shut them down. Um, so on the ABC, they come and say, there was, oh, it's just simple. It's so easy. And nobody challenges these guys. That's and they right. let them say to things to no campaigners, oh, that's disinformation. That's not true. When it is true, it's provably true. Um so I think you don't really have democracy. And that, to me, is yeah. a larger concern from my perspective on The Voice, obviously because I'm not Australian, so I don't have to deal with the other part, um, than the yeah. contents of The Voice itself. There's such a... I mean, you must have noticed there's a, there's a conspicuous absence, complete absence of conservative uh, sort of regular commentators on the ABC. None of their hosts and obviously none of the producers on their shows approach anything from a conservative perspective. And yet, since World War II, most of the, I think about two-thirds of the time, um, Australia has been led federally by centre-right parties. So, you know, the, the ABC just simply doesn't reflect the Australian, um, the Australian population. I mean, what's your observation? Do you think we are, a, a, you know, culturally, do you think we're left-leaning or is it just the media that's trying to massage it that way? No, I think you're culturally more right-leaning than, than the UK. Um, I think your media is quite left-leaning, yeah, yeah, to be fair. I think yeah. it is quite hard. Um, but I think culturally in terms of your grassroots people, the Australian people, in my view, are right-wing. Your politicians, no. Yeah. Like Some of them are just really weak. Yeah. Uh, even from the conservative side, they're not real conservatives and a lot of them are too scared. They're, they're people-pleasers. They're not the Margaret Thatchers that we really need. They're just weak. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for observing that <laughs> or confirming that yeah. anyway. But now the uh, the voice to parliament issue is not exactly something you're likely to uh, suffer in Britain because you don't have your indigenous your indigenous population are the population, aren't you lucky? But um, it, but you do have a new issue, um, a relatively new, which we've sort of already um, kind of uh, solved this problem in Australia. We did under Tony Abbott back in the uh, back in about two thousand and fifteen. It's the it's the issue of illegal immigration. Now I read a read a really nice piece by Douglas Murray in the Telegraph this week, and he offered a rather novel solution to the uh, to the hundreds of fighting age young men from Albania and Northern Africa coming across the channel in boats and being welcomed with open arms by uh, whichever authorities are on the beach to welcome them. Douglas Murray said to solve this problem. Quote, stop sending them, that's the illegal uh, immigrants, to corners of Liverpool where any local objection can be snorted at as racist by right-on Londoners and others. Work out the parts of the country that are most in favour of illegal migration. Islington springs to mind and send the illegal migrants there, end of quote. What do you think, Sophie? That's so true. I've been saying this for so long in the UK. You know, they come into working class communities like mine. We've got a lot in where I live in Farrakh. Um, so I, just explain where that is. So uh, Farrakh is right off the edge of East London, um, but we're near, so we have all of the ports where I'm from. So we have all the ports, we have all the oil terminals. So we get a lot of those just stop oil protesters annoyingly where we are as well. <laughs> um, but... Like I said, don't let them come into working class towns and communities like mine because we're all against it. They put them in our communities. We can't get our kids into our schools. We can't get GP appointments. You know, the culture of the area and the demographic of the area changes. Crime increases. Start putting them in places like Islington, like Surrey, where the rich people live. Because then as soon as, you know, they want them out of sight and out of mind. Migrants welcome, but not in my backyard. That's mm. pretty much what they do. And they do the same thing with ULES. We had one of the Lib Dem leaders with the ultra-low emission zone say, come on, yeah, let's do ULES. As soon as ULES was introduced, he wrote a letter saying, I don't want a camera in my, con in my constituency. Well, like, well, so you want ULES for everyone <laughs> else but yourself. And it's the same thing. They want illegal immigration for all of the poorer working class towns in the UK. And if they... Don't say anything. We're going to be called racist bigots and all the rest of it. But yet, if we started putting them in Surrey, uh, they'd send them back pretty quick. Look yeah. what they did in America. As soon as yeah. uh, DeSantis started shipping them over to the rich yeah. place, all of a exactly. sudden they didn't want them. New York sounds like a dangerous place to be these days. I mean, even Eric, uh, what's his name? Eric, um, the mayor of New York is saying uh, illegal migration is destroying the city. Yeah, it's destroyed the UK, it's destroyed Sweden. The same situation applies in the, just going back a bit to Balmoral Beach. The same applies there. The, the, the federal MP in that electorate is a woman called Zali Stegall. She just won her second federal election. She's in her second term. And she's as woke as they come. And, I mean, we have a, we have a sort of a, a, an umbrella, umbrella group for woke MPs in, in, uh, in these federal seats that represent what I call the guilty rich. And these are people who, you know, who have big house and big car, three big cars in the driveway and go on holidays every year and they just feel guilty about it. And so they elect these, we call them teals because they all have the same colour code they, they, on, their, on their campaigning material. And they, they assure us that they're not funded by the same uh, 
a benefactor, but they are, and they assure us that they're not an organised party, but on by all intents and purposes they are. Anyway, Zali is the cookie-cutter Teal MP, Zali Stegall, and she would be fully in favour of, you know, well, she's certainly in favour of saying yes to The Voice. As for, you know, um, traditional owners claiming ownership of government or crown land, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm almost certain she supports that too, but uh, she certainly wouldn't be supporting it on Balmoral Beach. She's not going to, same with renewable energy. She's not going to be sticking giant windmills up on the edge of the harbour or blanketing, you know, the, the unused parkland on the edge of the harbour with solar panels. It's, it's just nimbyism. It's just the most, uh, it's just the worst aspect of modern politics, isn't it? Yeah, the woke people, uh, or as you say, you call them the guilty rich, I call them the embarrassed rich. Because um, <laughs> they're, they're all self-hating. All of them hate themselves massively because they feel ashamed for being rich. So what they do is that they then conjure up these ludicrous policies that hurt working class people, like immigration or net zero, because they think they're doing something good and they're saving the planet. So it's basically screw the poor so I can make myself feel a bit better about myself and I can hate myself a little bit less, <laughs> which is pretty much what they do. But yeah. as soon as it starts to come in my backyard, do they want to actually feel the consequences of their own policies? And they're not interested. Yeah. So I think we just need to start calling them out for what it is. I think we yes. need to start putting all of the illegal immigrants in their constituencies. I, need to, yeah. I think we need to start putting all ULES cameras in their constituencies yeah. and wait until they lose pretty yes. quickly. Get and, rid of them. and stick giant windmills up in their parks. Yes. Yes. Oh, I think Solar just, farms everywhere. <laughs> we've just about set the world to rights already. Let's talk about the insanity, speaking of, of, of giant windmills, let's talk about the insanity of net zero and renewable energy. I had a crack at our Energy Minister Chris Bowen on Monday night. Let's have a listen to that. Firstly, we will need to improve the technology of recycling renewables over time. But the good news is, the key things in solar panels, glass, aluminium, copper and silver, can all be recycled today. It's just a bit of a complicated process to separate them to recycle them. Don't you love the body language? Don't you worry about it, you plebs? It's all under control. It's a complicated process, but the men in white coats are working on it. Meanwhile, forget that I ever said during the last election campaign that you'd pay less for electricity. What sort of a fool believes politicians these days anyway? Oh, and get ready for blackouts this summer. It's mildly reassuring that Australia is not the only country being sent into bankruptcy by this madness. The Telegraph in London reports today that a backbench revolt in the ruling Conservative Party is seeking to overturn a ban on new windmills in the country where energy prices are already through the roof. Quote, Ministers are poised to unveil changes to planning rules that will free up councils to give the green light to proposed turbines where there is broad public support. The proposal has attracted supporters from across the Conservative Party, including Liz Truss, the former Prime Minister. And Labor supports the idea, of course. But at least the proposal is locally driven, unlike here, where the guilty rich in inner-city mansions with two-rack tractors in the driveway 
vote in Teal MPs and send them to Canberra with the brief to install renewables anywhere but in their own electorate. But we do have one thing in common with the UK. We too are governed by a uni party. Well, there's plenty to talk about there, Sophie, but the uni party thing is the most um, most disturbing thing for me. I mean, we, we don't have much of an alternative uh, in the opposition here in Australia. Is it the same in Britain? Yeah, pretty much. And I think it's quite concerning that a lot of these policies you would see uh, in the UK is coming from a Conservative government. So yeah. here in, in Australia, you know, it's coming from a Labour government. They're always going to be loonies. But it's coming from a Conservative government in the UK. None of this is Conservative and it's against what the voters elected them on to do. And the problem is, is that with net zero, I've always championed that the UK needs to have a referendum on net zero. People need to be given a choice of whether they want to choose to have their life to be colder, poorer and more miserable. Because I guarantee you, if you put... Who would vote for that, do you think? (laughs) Nobody. So I guarantee you, if you put uh, net zero up to a referendum, it would lose. And it would lose more than what the no vote, the yes vote, sorry, here is going to lose by, which hopefully is going to be quite a lot. But the net zero would get absolutely battered. But of course, they've learnt their lesson from Brexit, which is don't give the working class people a vote because they will not do what you tell them to do. um, Because what you tell them to do is not in their interest. Nobody wants net zero in the UK. But the problem is, is that every single party in the 2019 general election had net zero in their manifesto. There was not one party that was against net zero. So everyone says, well, well, you elected the Conservative Party to govern. They had net zero in their manifesto. So therefore you gave them a mandate to do it. So no, you didn't because people didn't have a choice. There was no party without net zero on it. So people had no option to vote against net zero in 2019, which is why we need a referendum. But it's yeah. concerning because there's no opposition. So does Rishi Sunak genuinely want to get rid of these? I mean, this is the case in point, the windmills, onshore windmills in Britain, or is he is he just playing to the... To the pop to some sort of popular vote, or does he genuinely think that? What do you what do you reckon? I think he's learned his lesson. I think for a long time he was very pro net zero, and what he realizes is that working people in Britain aren't pro net zero. And I want to trust a lot of the policies that are going to come out this year, but I'm not going to trust any of them because, of course, it's the year of a general election. And mm. if you haven't done it, and you've you know done different policies in the years prior to a general election when you don't have that looming vote and that looming public accountability being held over you, then I'm not going to trust you doing it now because there's clearly only one reason why you're actually doing it, and it's because you know full well that if you went into a general election with these policies, the people would say no. But if we re-elect you again after that, are you going to flip the switch? Yes, you probably are going to flip the switch. So I don't really trust anything that they're doing now, but he has started to come to his senses a little bit and has started to you know, crack down on... This Well, actually, no, I don't believe he has because he's saying that he's against LTNs and he's against ULEZ, which is fantastic to be against ULEZ, but he actually has a, an ability to stop ULEZ. So yes, the, that's the right. The ministers have the power to stop ULEZ and they've come out and said, oh, we're not going to do it because the courts would just tell us it's bad. No, do it because it shows the people that you're committed in to do it. If the courts overturn it, like they do whenever we try and send our illegal immigrants back because the lefty lawyers in the UK hate the British people massively because they're all getting a you know a massive chunk of money for, for doing the wrong thing. If they do that, then we can blame them. But at least we know that what you're trying to do is proper. But he's not because he's actually not against it. So he's talking a good game, which Rishi Sunak always does. He's a proper private school boy. They know how to talk a good game, but they don't believe anything that they say. And they're not going to do anything that they say. But the people have had enough of net zero here. Yeah, well... One of the other aspects of the uniparty uh, phenomenon is freedom of speech. 
Now let's hear from South Australian Senator Alex Antich. He's uh, he's one of the heroes of the of the Australian political scene. He's uh, talk, talking about the uh, federal government, the federal Labor government's proposed new misinformation and disinformation bill. Let's have a listen. If only politicians in power and their companions in big tech have the means to determine what falls under misinformation and disinformation, doesn't this put Australia's democracy at grave risk? Look, I, I think it does, Daisy. I, I, I'm very alarmed by this and I'm alarmed by fact that we're seeing it rolling out across the West as well. This is the uh, Australian uh, example being the the um, so-called misinformation or disinformation bill. I forget, I mix them up. I can't <laughs> ever tell which one's which, but it's one or both uh, that's being run by the Labor government here. And it's uh, it's basically designed to give the, the media authority, ACMA, um, more powers to codify what is and isn't true. That's probably the simplest way to put it. I'm sure you watchers and listeners are well aware of all of this. But in essence, the answer to the question, what is true, is whatever government tells us. Uh, and we've seen this before. This is what happened during COVID. This is what happens with the climate uh, agenda. And we get this sort of bureaucratic conga line of truth, which, you know, now if this bill were to go through, would culminate with the, the sort of the dampening down of social media even further and being even further censored and, and even more alarming, the kind of genuine independent media sources like ADHTV could be subject to the whims of a bureaucrat's, uh, you know, truth bubble whatever that may be, um, it's really, really bad. I mean, we talk about it in, you know, sort of broad terms, but this is actually really, really worrying. And as I said at CPAC recently, we use the term Orwellian far too much, I think, sometimes, but this is genuinely Orwellian. And that, well, of course, was the unmistakable voice of Daisy Cousins interviewing uh, Alex Antich on ADHTV. All the, by the way, uh, listener, if all of these grabs are from ADHTV, and you can find all of this content on adh.tv if you're interested in listening more and delving into some of the best common sense commentary in the country. But Sophie, my question for you now is, which country is more Orwellian, Britain or Australia? That's such a tough question, to be honest. Um, well, I would have said coming to here, Australia, because of Dan Andrews' shenanigans during COVID that embarrassed your entire nation. Um, but no, we have very similar things actually in the UK. So you guys obviously have this disinformation bill. We have something called the Online Harms Bill, which is pretty much very similar to that. Obviously, we've cracked down massively on protesting in the UK so that if you walk too slowly um, in a protest, so slow walking, making too much noise, all of that kind of stuff is banned, um, is illegal, you get put in prison for it, which is kind of tough from our perspective because it has come from the Just Stop Oil protesters. So the reason why these things had to be implemented is because of those protesters. But it also then impacts any other sort of genuinely good protest that needs to happen in the UK. So we kind of shot ourselves in the foot a little bit there. Um, and then obviously we also have now in the UK, if you've got a gas boiler and your energy doesn't meet your energy efficient targets, then you're headed for prison. So clearly we're taking the biscuit and the uh, draconian camp over here um so i think actually i would have said australia because of your behavior during covid but unfortunately i'm gonna have to say britain well have you been to any protest marches in in britain over the past few years um i went to a lot of the ones uh, during covid because we had you know big marches against that and it's quite ironic how the media presents these marches because 
we had massive Black Lives Matter marches in the UK and they were unbelievably violent. And obviously, of course, they're described as mostly peaceful. <laughs> Only a few people have been stabbed to death. Great, great <laughs> job. Um, but then they were saying that, you know, the anti-ULEZ ones, they've painted everyone, because that's one of the ones I went to the most recently, um, as hard right jobs. And I was like, hard right jobs? It's literally like people that can't afford to pay £60 a week to go to work. They're, most of them are Labour voters. A lot of the anti-ULIS protesters were Labour voters because they can't afford to pay £60 and they were presented as hard right jobs. But they are massively cracking down on protests here. If you know, walk too slowly, they keep trying to take poor Steve Bray's boombox away from me every time he tries to shout at me when I go to work in Westminster. <laughs> but yeah, it's getting really draconian in the UK and a lot of it is coming from the green nonsense. And... In one sense, Rishi Sunak is saying, you know, we're going to stop this crackdown on cars, but the next minute they're trying to flip through a bill on the back door. And the offshore wind farms, as we discussed, part of that bill is what everybody's focusing on because they want to take your eye on the way from the fact that part of that bill allows governments to create their own new criminal offences and increase penalties for criminal offences for not keeping up with people's green energy efficiency targets. So if you don't meet the government's energy efficiency targets, you can face up to a year in prison or £15,000 fine. If you stop people entering your property to force you to put in a smart meter in your home, which will measure how much carbon that you're... Um, how much energy that you're using because they'll probably end up capping it and forcing you to use only a certain amount and if you don't have a smart meter forcefully enforced into your home or you tell them you know wrong readings so you you know manipulate your readings and don't tell them the truth because they want to stop you using so much energy um you then will face again up to a year in prison and a fifteen thousand pound fine if you don't let someone come in your home and forcefully install a smart meter into your house wow that is all which is crazily you know, I think it was one of the weirdest things I've ever, I've that, ever read. It, it, I almost thought yeah. it wasn't true. I was like, this cannot yeah. be true. When I well, well this it, happens no to us all the time now. You know, every week there's something you think, oh, that can't be true. A hundred, you know, traditional owners claiming uh, uh, claiming ownership of a one hundred million dollar block of land in the most prestigious, one of the most prestigious suburbs in Sydney. Like, you know, every day, every day there's something like that, and you think, oh, that can't be true. But speaking of protests, I, I went on a uh, one of the, the the first big one in Sydney. I went on a few, but the the uh, the first really big one. A friend of mine had told me about it. It was in uh, mid uh, two thousand and twenty one, and a friend of mine had told me about it. He'd he'd been sending me links to proposed protests, and they were all sort of small scale, and there was a few nutters involved, and I, I kind of ignored them, and then. By the middle of 2021, I'd got so sick of it. I thought, oh, I don't care what happens. I'm going this time. Because all the previous ones had been pretty brutally shut down. And I just thought, I'm, I'm going this time. I, I can't stand it anymore. And so I, I turned up. I, I arranged to meet a friend. And um, I, as I, I parked my bike not far from there and I started walking towards it, it was like walking towards a festival. Like it was like, you know, sort of walking into Glastonbury or something. I mean, the, people were coming from all directions to meet at this meeting point. I was expecting a couple hundred people. There was like 20,000. I mean, we filled the length of Broadway when we marched into the city, which is, you know, for people who haven't been to Sydney, it's, you know, it's a good, uh, you know, seven, 800 K, 700, 800 metres, you know, and we absolutely filled the street. The cops couldn't stop us. And then we wound up in the middle of the city. Anyway, the point of my story is I wound up on the home page of the Telegraph in Britain and on the Guardian all over the place. <laughs> I got caught up in this little, this very dramatic little scene where this cop almost got beaten up, and uh, and I a few a few people rushed in to sort of step step between 
him and the guys who wanted to beat him up. It was it all happened in the matter of about four or five seconds. But a photographer was on hand and things looked very tense and the, the horses came in. Anyway, it looked it looked for all the world like I was trying to start a riot, but I was actually trying to stop one. Gosh. Anyway, all that aside, um, they are fun uh, going um, and uh, it is it's a great thing to do to actually get out on the street and defend your freedoms. The thing that I remember most about that, and I'll never forget, it was one of the most. I, I actually don't like this word much, but it was one of the most multicultural events I've ever been to. People from all over Sydney, all walks of life, but mostly, you know, lower middle class and below, the people who were just really being hit brutally hard by these lockdowns. And they had just said, like me, they'd just gone, I have had enough. Uh, but, you know, the the, the, the the powers that be ignored them. Yeah. You know, and the lockdowns, the lockdowns are coming back. The but lockdowns think, are coming yeah. back, Sophie. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, Canada's reinstalled the mask mandates in all of their hospitals, haven't they? So yep. it, they're slowly starting to bring it back because, you know, they tried with monkeypox and we all yeah. just laughed at yeah. them. So then but you know why it's coming blue. back, don't you? Then it was there's a, there's a awesome. US election on. Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah <laughs> they need the it so they can rig the election so they can have, you know, six weeks of, of, of mail-in ballots so the Democrats can stuff the ballot boxes with fake ballots. It's the only reason it's come back for the US electoral cycle and, and the rest of the Western liberal democracies have to democracies have to toe the line to pretend yeah. that it's a global pandemic. It's just crazy. But let, anyway, let's talk more about dystopia because it's such a fascinating topic. <laughs> An independent MP from the state seat of Sydney in New South Wales. This is just bonkers. Alex Greenwich uh, has introduced a bill to Parliament that seeks to overturn... Well, overturn some very fundamental biological truths. This is how women's rights campaigner and lawyer Catherine Deves explained it on Spectator TV. It seems clear to me that Alex Greenwich wants to create a brave new world. Uh, he wants to erase sex in New South Wales legislation. He wants to denude the law of any reference to um, sex-specific language, with women even being memorably referred to as people with the with people with bodies uh, with the capability of being pregnant. Uh, people will be able to go to the birth, deaths and marriages registry and with a stat deck from someone they've known for 12 months from the age of 16, they'll be able to change their sex to male, female or something else. And provided that something else is not profane, it could be anything you want. It can be agender, gender queer, even cat gender. And if your child from the age of 12 wants to do it and you don't agree, there's a mechanism by which they can go around you and go to NCAT and change that. It's getting rid of uh, single-sex schools. Uh, it's removing the summary offences around prostitution. Um, it even goes into huge, great detail into cavity searches uh, when people are incarcerated, which will allow a transgender person to choose the sex uh, of the person that needs to perform that search. He wants to reduce those protections and I just see this as a complete affront to women and to families and uh, basically biological reality. So Sophie, we've already talked about how they're coming after our freedoms, now they're coming after the family structure. What do you think? 
I mean, I just don't expect why they expect people to say something that they can fundamentally see isn't true. So for this week in the in the Mirror, which is a UK newspaper, massive lefty newspaper, they had a guy that literally looked like Mr. Bean in a wig. Like it was it was <laughs> Mr. Bean in a wig. Like, I'm not lying to you. Oh, no. I kind of stressed to you how much he was literally Mr. Bean in a wig. And there was like. And this guy was a sex offender, and they was like, woman, offend sexually. Oh, I was like, that no. is not a woman. It's not a woman. Like, it's Mr. Bean in a wig. And, like, yeah. everyone is saying, no, that's Mr. Bean in a wig. Like, you can't expect people to lie about things that they can see are truthful. And I think that's why a lot of people are starting to fight up against this stuff. I mean, we've had But, but speaking of which, I mean, do you think that the brainwashing of your generation – is, has made it easy through the education system, has made it easier for, uh, I mean, could the, the impetus for all this is coming from, you know, sort of younger baby boomers, maybe Gen X kind of age group, right? Do you think they have an easy job pushing this through because your generation has been comprehensively brainwashed by the education system? Yeah, I think so. Um, but I would like to say, you know, there's a lot of negativity around this. There is some positivity around this because in Britain, young people, especially young women, were starting to fight back. There was a young girl that got kicked out of her class the other day because she refused to believe that somebody could identify as a cat. And the oh. teacher would, like, reported her to, like, the principal and said that, you know, she was, like, this disgusting, bigoted human being <laughs> because the girl was like, you literally can't identify as a cat. But the girl stood her ground. Like, she did not care she didn't whimper away. And there's, I think, about a group of eight young girls have started a petition in the UK to ensure single-sex toilets in schools. So this is coming from our generation now. You know, young girls in our generation, they've had enough. They've, yeah. They're not letting people walk over us anymore. They're not letting these people tell us things that are just abjectly not true. Yeah, good. Yeah, well, there's no... Uh, I, I often say that... Um, uh, vin vindication, the truth always vindicates. But uh, sometimes you wonder if the truth is is ever going to <laughs> re-emerge at all. But he, he, this is an interesting consequence that uh, of all this shenanigans uh, um, has, and Catherine Deves has identified it. This is interesting. Let's have a listen to the last grab from Spectator TV. By pretending that a birth certificate is all about your identity, instead of a, a collection of data, uh, a snapshot in time, you know, where you are born, the time, the date, who your mother and father are, who your siblings are, I mean, you're even going to be able to make an application to change the birth certificate of other people. So if you're the youngest child and you're on your elder sibling's birth certificate or your marriage certificate, you're going to be able to rewrite your history. And, you know, I ask the question, who benefits when you can hide your former name and your former sex uh, and, and you want to hide your history because I don't think that uh, the people who've drafted this bill have really seriously thought uh, about how this can be exploited uh, and weaponised and used by bad actors. That's an interesting question. Who benefits? I mean, they are treating people like us who are just normal, you know, I mean, I've, I've got I've got grown up kids. I'm married. You know, I don't want to change my gender, and I don't want to play sport against women. They they're treating us as the weird ones, and and the conventionally or what was traditionally known as weird are now the sort of you know the the normal ones. 
it, they're kind of giving the game away here, aren't they, Sophie? Yeah, I think that's actually always one of the things I've always felt is that these people make me feel like I'm some sort of far-right loony. And, like, a lot of the things I read, you know, when we're going back to the draconian things, to the green stuff, oftentimes when I talk about this, it almost makes me feel like I'm some sort of conspiracy theorist, even though I'm saying what's true, because the stuff that they're coming out with is so bizarre that in a normal world, in a normal brain, that simply just can't be true. It's just nonsensical. So then you kind of feel a bit strange within yourself, like we're going mad, but it's not us going mad. It's just the world going mad and we're all <laughs> trying to spectate it. But who does it benefit? It benefits criminals. That's yep. who it benefits, people that yep. can lie about where they're from. And one of the weirdest things I've always felt about this is a lot of these feminists that are pushing these ideas whenever a woman is murdered by a man which happens quite a lot actually in the uk they do the whole spiel of educate your sons all men are trash you know and like they're bringing in these like domestic violence courses i think in australia aren't they where they're trying to tell boys that they're all like sex offenders and evil people which is not true but if you're coming from that view and that you genuinely believe all men are bad, all men are dangerous, why do you want me to share a bathroom with one? Good why question. do you want me to play sports with one? Why do you want me to have one in my women's refuges? So if you think all men are bad, why are then, when it comes to the trans men and we say there are people that are going to exploit this to have access to vulnerable women in women's prisons, to have access to young children in bathrooms and to do things that they shouldn't be doing and acting with bad faith, why all of a sudden do you have this attitude shift that, oh, no, they're not all bad people. They're all good people. None of them are actually doing it to be bad. So you're telling me that you're going to tarnish the entire male demographic as being sex offenders, domestic abusers and all this when you have no evidence to suggest the fact. But when you have the facts that a large amount of rapes come from gender-neutral bathrooms, when you have the fact of literal people that cause sexual offences when they were male turn up to prison and all of a sudden want to identify as a woman so they can be in a prison with the people that they've abused their entire lives. Oh, no, they're just doing it in good faith. Give me a rest. Give it a rest. I think the pattern here is that uh, the, the, the men that, they, that this particular uh, cohort believe are acceptable are the ones that have denied their and I have to add this adjective, toxic masculinity. And so the conventional men who remain masculine, they're the toxic ones and the the psychos, and I say that with no reservation or apology whatsoever, the psychos who want to invade women's spaces are the nice ones. Yeah, I just it's so backwards. It's, it's, they're yeah. going against their own brain. Yeah. Or yeah. like they spent my entire childhood saying, oh, you know, men can wear pink, women can wear blue and play football. I was a massive tomboy growing up. I, was pro- I still probably am actually quite a big of a tomboy. I mean, I play every sport under the sun. Used to have wrestling figures, wouldn't touch a Barbie me, wouldn't wear a dress. I was literally like such a, a tomboy because I grew up with big brothers. But I'm as girly as girly can get now because I was allowed to grow up like a normal person. But I don't think it's possible for somebody to be transgender because the only way that they can be transgender is if you accept that being a woman is anything else other than biological reality. So you then have something, there's such thing as dressing like a woman or sounding like a woman or looking like a woman. So then at that point you have to say, well, if that person has short hair, they must be a man, which is the exact thing that they railed against when I was a kid. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. So, you know, do you want gender stereotypes? Then all of a sudden it was out of fashion when I was a kid and now it's back in fashion so long as that weird perverted men can pretend to be women for five minutes. Well, that's an interesting word, fashion. I do hope, Sophie, that everything we've discussed today, all these things that seem to be eating away at our civilization, are merely fashionable ideas and maybe one day soon we will see them all consigned to the dustbin of history like flared jeans and tie-dye T-shirts. Um, so anyway, Sophie, thank you so much for uh, coming in and uh, filling Nick Cater's spot on the on the Parting Shots podcast. Any Parting Shots comments, Sophie? Uh, no, I just hope I did Mr. Cater proud and yeah, uh, keep watching did. for our fantastic content from here from ADH and be unfashionable. That, <laughs> well said. And I've got to say thanks to Resh in the control room for keeping the grabs coming. And uh, my name is Fred Paul. This is Parting Shots on ADH TV. Uh, we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.